feverishly for people to aspire to be like. And your longevity and faithfulness in the ministry is just that very thing. Thank you for all that you have done and continue to do because the Lord Jesus has captivated your heart and you love him deeply. So so happy Father's Day to you and thank you for being with us. Wonderful, wonderful. I feel like I want to say something in Spanish, but I don't know too much. Who could say, who could give a beautiful welcome in Spanish? Do we have any? Stella, please. <laughs> Mr. Fast, this lady is from Colombia. So she's going to say something. I don't know what she's going to do to you. Wow, that was beautiful. It was, they spoke in tongues. And, uh, and let me translate for you. Stella said, is there any good kosher food in Venezuela? And he said, the gefilte fish is out of this world. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Welcome to you and to Stella as well. So it's Father's Day. I'm glad you're here. Do you know some uh, choose to stay back on Father's Day? I can understand. Because it's not a celebratory day for all folks. These um, days of celebration sometimes accentuate some deep hurt in the lives of many. We have to be honest about it. Some dads are estranged from their children. Hearts have been hurt and broken. Some long to be dads and have not been able to. Um, some are perhaps this Father's Day without their dad for the first time. Some are in households where uh, you, the single mom, uh, are raising children in the absence of a dad. Many, many, many things. I understand that. So what do you do on a day like this? Do you grin and bear it? No, 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 no. You grin. And you bear up under it because you think of an ultimate reality. And this is it. First uh, John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father, that's the word, the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. You take the hurt. You don't deny it. That would be foolish. And you let it give impetus to thanksgiving because you say, but I have a heavenly father, an Abba father, who will not let me go. Everything else notwithstanding, I'm in a familial relationship with him, the likes of which I've never had. I'm like a child to a father. Now think of this other passage. Words uttered by the psalmist, he said, though my father and my mother may forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Wow, what a profound rejection message from significant others, a father, a mother. Sadly, it happens. David said, though this may happen, yet the Lord will take me up. So what do you do on this Father's Day? You rejoice. If through the Lord Jesus, his father has become your father. 
Because now you're in his family and he's the dad perhaps you never had. He's the dad who affirms. He's the dad who loves. He's the dad who cheers for you. He does not criticize you. He's the dad who has cast all your sins behind his back. He doesn't parade them before you. He's the dad who says, I'll never let you go. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's the dad who is the... uh, uh, bomb for all sense of rejection, abandonment, exploitation, and abuse perhaps you may have experienced. He's the God who says, no, 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 come to me. I'll give you rest. So take this Father's Day, <clears throat> translate it. It's a mind thing, isn't it? You could let it bring you down or it could let, you could let it bring you up. Abba, think about the creator of the universe. He's transcendent deity. He knows you as his kid, and you can call him Papa and Daddy. You have as much reason to celebrate today as those of you who later today will have wonderful times with wholesome, harmonious uh, family relationships. Mazel tov. Congratulations to you. Uh, but that's not everybody. And so, so for the rest, whose day is it? a challenging one. Just let it usher you into the presence of Almighty God who considers you to be his son or his daughter through Christ Jesus. You know when you are saved, of course the primary issue is to be saved from sin, its penalty and power over us. Uh, But the Savior saves us from a lot of stuff. He saves us from hopelessness on a day such as this. He saves us from hurt uh, which leaves us without hope. He saves us from alienation, and he saves us from the feeling that we don't belong, that we don't matter, that we don't count. He saves us from all of those things as well. So I hope you know him as Savior in all those respects as well. And if you do, I don't know if it's going to be a happy Father's Day, but it can be a joyous Father's Day. See, the two are different, are they not? You're entitled to wounds for sure. Uh, but be joyous because he's with you in the hurt and will never, ever, ever let you go. He is the perfect dad, frankly, none of us have ever had. Well, all right, let's close and go home and get a bite to eat. <clears throat> no, we are in Jeremiah, dear friends. Today, Jeremiah chapter 9. Let me invite your attention to it and uh, so that you don't get worried we won't even come close to finishing it all. So we, we won't be here for an unduly long period of time. We'll do a few verses and we'll stop when our time is up. And Lord willing, we'll pick up where we left off next week. No rush. We want to get this in us rather than just get through it. <clears throat> Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, as you know. God chose him. <clears throat> Jeremiah didn't ask for it. And God chose him to be a message carrier, but the message was a burden to carry. That's the way it is. You know, if God's going to use you, he doesn't ask you for permission. And uh, you, you cannot edit the message he wants you to carry. So today you have a lot of editing in, in various pulpits. You have a lot of editing of God's message. And what's edited out are the tough passages that um, maybe folks don't want to hear. And uh, what are popularized are the passages, you know, that make us feel good. I like to feel good. 
so do you. But if the Bible is the word of God, and I know you believe it is, we can't edit it. We have to just go through it, Every, <laughs> everything in it. We can't take out the parts that are rough. This is rough. Jeremiah is rough because it's about the terrible uh, sin and degradation of ancient Israel. But by extension, it's about our sin, too, because it's about human nature. And it isn't a pretty picture. So that's why some of the prophets of God uh, are said to carry the burden, the burden which the Lord gave me. So I must tell you, Jeremiah would have preferred, I suppose, what we could call what is called today the prosperity message. Um, uh, uh, but, but but he had to give the judgment message because that's what God told him to carry. And it was a burden for him because he's a human, right? He's not a machine. He's not a robot. Just to show you how burdened he was, check out verse 1 of Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah is speaking here. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He's the carrier of the message of this very judgment, judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. And he knew Israel was deserving of it. Yet he had to maintain this tension between the message carrier of judgment deserved and yet an aching heart for those who will be judged. May it be said that we would be a people of this balance. That is to say, we don't compromise the holiness of God and what happens in the face of unholy behavior. We cannot deny that God will judge sin and a sinful society. But we ought not harden ourselves to the society. I hope God gives us a softened, weeping heart. Because of texts like this, Jeremiah was given the description, the weeping prophet. See, he metaphorically says, I wish my whole head was H2O, not solid, just liquid, so that it would constantly be a fountain. My eyes would be a constant, unending, continuous fountain of tears because that's just the extent to which I'm grieving. I'm grieving what's happening in my day in my people, in my world. So too you and I need to grieve. Yes, there's a place, I suppose, for a righteous kind of indignation. I understand that. But that's the tension we have to maintain. But don't be so hardened uh, that we become unable to weep over what's happening even in our own day. So he is the weeping prophet. And then he says this in verse 2. It's a wish he had. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place. You know what he's saying? He's not saying, I wish I could find a nice motel, air-conditioned, and along the beautiful shores of the Dead Sea. No. His description means, I would rather live in a tent in total isolation from the rest of humankind I would rather be in a parched, arid desert than to be in the midst of the reality which faces me now. He said, oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them. 
Why? For all of them are adulterers. They are an assembly of treacherous men. So verse 2 is what I would like to call the minister's malady. Anyone who has served in ministry is very tempted to throw up his or her hands at least at times and say, I've had enough. I don't want anything to do with those sheep. You may love them. I'm sick and tired of them. I could sell insurance. I'm going to do, I'd need this like a hole in the head. Every minister faces this particular malady. You know you're called, and yet at times you just want to go live in a tent in the desert and get away from it all. So what do you do? You do just what Jeremiah did. You fess up. You pour it out, and you don't move on your inclination to give up. You stay put, because if you're called, you're called. (laughs) And you cannot violate the call. And if a person thinks, well, I'll try the ministry to see how it works out, that is not sufficient supernatural calling to give you staying power in it. Jeremiah had a normal, understandable inclination. He simply didn't act on it. I'm going to go back to, um, Lord willing, Baton Rouge, Louisiana in July because a young person who was in my church has finished seminary, is being ordained, and asked me to deliver the charge. I shall do it because it's a blessing. I want to get in on it. And this is a young kid who has really grown like crazy. He feels a calling, uh, brother, to the mission field amongst Spanish-speaking people. So I'm going to go. His name is Mario Melendez, and he's just a super kid. Kid to me, but I guess he's a young adult now. So I think I'm going to use this verse, and I'm going to warn him, Mario, there'll be days... See, here's the deal. The minister is an under-shepherd, not the chief shepherd, an under-shepherd of the flock, of the sheep. And frankly, sometimes sheep stink. (laughs) And they attract flies. (laughs) So you just want to get away from it. That's just the way it is. It's normal. And then you got to realize, oh, but wait, I'm a sheep. I stink and I attract flies just as well. And then you remember the call. That's why it's so important to know that you're called. You just didn't make a vocational decision. You have to know you're called, just as Jeremiah was clearly impressed with the fact that God ordained, that's what ordination is, a recognition of God's call. So anyway, this is the minister's malady. It's normal. It's acceptable. You get over it, and you remember to love the people for whom Christ died. And that would just get you going no matter what. So anyway, this is his uh, situation. Now verse 3, the speaker changes. First two verses, Jeremiah is speaking, but now God is. How do we know that? Well, you'll see. 
It says so in a second. It's a little tricky as you go through Jeremiah to figure out who's doing the talking. Sometimes it's Jeremiah and sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's indistinguishable. Why? Because sometimes Jeremiah is speaking words that reflect the mind of God and so you can't tell who's talking. But in this case, we know the speaker is changing. You'll see. Verse 3. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. The land was characterized by lying. For they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord. So you see there we can know for sure the speaker has changed. First it was Jeremiah weeping and grieving and wanting to run. Now it is God weighing in on the evil of the people. Verse 4, he says, Let everyone be on guard against his, isn't this terrible? Against his neighbor and do not trust any brother because every brother deals craftily Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. The people, the society, had become so wicked, so godless, that distrust prevailed. I don't want to ruin anybody's day. I just would like to lift up the relevance of Scripture. I think it's our day. Because of um, violation of trust, in every level of society, from the top on down, we have become, I think legitimately, a very distrustful people group. In fact, we're simply waiting for the smooth talker um, to be the subject of a scandalous news report. We're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, if you will. This seems to be prevalent that those who... Uh, seek to win our trust and get it, violate it, whether it be politicians, clergy, authority figures, neighbors, even family members. It is one of the indications of the depravity and downward spiral of a society when those who you think you could trust, you cannot trust. It's just the day in which we, what are we going to do as Christians to keep us above the line of cynicism? Well, I, I mean, th- there is one who we can trust and he's so trustworthy that he can get the job done even through untrustworthy ones. So more than ever, we put our confidence in the Lord Jesus who's never violated our trust. So it's kind of a rough day, and it's characterized by um, lack of truth. Verse 5, everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. It's interesting. We all have, I think, natural inclination to lie. It's in us, but we, I think, have lying now down to a science. It's fascinating to me to see when there are congressional hearings or interviews of some of our leaders and so on. It's absolutely fascinating to me. They're sort of responding to the question, and yet at the end of it, you say, I don't know what they said. They gave an answer, but I don't know what they said. It's fascinating to me. It's just the perfection 
uh, of a lying tongue uh, to a degree I personally have never seen in my 60 years here on planet Earth. It's not that human nature has never been like this. It always has. But I am telling you, as it said in Jeremiah's day, I think it's true in our day, too. They've taught their tongue to speak. I think today people are actually coached how to handle questions and so on. See, when I grew up, here's the coaching. Tell the truth. It's different today. You know, this text encourages me because it's been before the way it is today. And God has had his way then and shall now. In spite of it all. You know, I watched some TV yesterday because I didn't want to do anything of value. And uh, even the commercials, <clears throat> I mean, they had one, which is fascinating to me. Even the commercial, you know, they're blatant lies, the commercials. They're just blatant. I've never seen it so, so skillfully deceptive. It's a lie. For instance, if you're having a few pounds that you want to shed, bit of a weight problem, good news. Exercise is not required. <laughs> Dietary correction not required. All you got to do is buy this uh, belt and you put it around you and it jiggles. <laughs> and you just jiggle the calories away. This is just the coolest deal. I'm going to get one while I'm eating Bluebell ice cream. I just hope I don't spill it. That's the only thing. Come on. That doesn't work. And they show these people with these rock-hard uh, abdominal... They're... Do you think that's attributable to the jiggle thing? Come on. These are people who spend seven to eight hours a day in the gym. They eat nothing but celery. <laughs> they got nothing to do but try to get a job on a commercial like this, deceiving us into thinking they got that way by using the jiggle belt. No, they, that's a lie. We watched another one where you can get this stuff and you squeeze it out of a tube and you put it on your um, calcified shower heads coffee pots, tools you've used and that have rusted. No elbow grease required. You just spread it on and go get your hamburger or something. You could get a cheese, double cheeseburger with bacon because you, you don't get the jiggle belt. When you're done chowing down, you go back, you just wipe this stuff, this calcification that's been on there for 33 years. You just get a million. It's like new. No, it isn't. That's a stinking lie. You want to get another product? Good night. If you want to um, hang your car on the wall of your living room, all it takes is one little strip of this magic. I mean, it'll hold your car. Put it up there. You got your Toyota. Then you might as well. They don't stop. You might put the Toyota up there. Use it for. Come on, that isn't true. 
It's just, it's flat out lying. Tell the truth. No. It doesn't happen. See, the very fabric of Jeremiah's society and ours has so unraveled, it says no one would speak the truth. Tell me, minister so-and-so, do you mean to tell me the one billion devout Muslim people who do not name the name of Jesus, do you mean to tell me that the very sincere and jealous zealous Jewish people who do not name the name of Jesus. Do you mean to tell me that moral, ethical, religious people of many stripes who merely do not name the name of Jesus will be destined to hell? What is the answer? Tell the truth. That's the answer. Could I tell you how when you train your tongue not to tell the truth... Well, uh, it's not up to me. It's up to God. I agree with that. God has already weighed in on the issue. It's clear. Here's what he said. And there is salvation in no other name. That has been named under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name Jesus Christ. Got a problem? Take it up with God. I didn't write that. You see, so we just, we just, I don't want to lose my constituency, so I'll play. Tell the truth! You don't need your media consultation committee before you get interviewed. Spit it out. Do you mean to say that the practice of homosexuality is sin? What's the answer? Yes, it is. Do you notice how I phrase that? The practice of homosexuality? Why did I say that? Some have a tendency towards same gender attraction and have noticed it from early on. And they say, I'm struggling with it. I say, stay in the struggle. It's no different than a heterosexual struggling with his or her impulses to have relations outside the confines of marriage. I say to that person, I say to myself, struggle with it. The struggle is not the problem. Yielding to the temptation is the problem. So you notice I said it's the practice of homosexuality, as is the practice of heterosexual infidelity, which is the problem. You know, it's being considered uh, as a hate crime if you speak out against the acceptability of homosexuality and same-gender marriage. You know, that's an easy one for me to deal with. Look, same-sex marriage. Contradiction in terms. Because marriage, by definition, now if you're talking to me, are you in favor of same-sex civil union or something? You know, we can have a discussion. But there is no such thing as same-gender marriage. There's there's no such, it's an oxymoron. It's this, boom, it's, so Laura Bush is wrong. Speak the truth. 
Charlie, right? Speak the truth. Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. Abortion. Right or wrong in God's eyes. Speak the truth. I didn't say harm, hurt, be hatefully predisposed towards ladies who have had an abortion. I did not say that. I said, minister, embrace. Help them to be embraced by the forgiving one. Help them to know where their baby is now. The Bible speaks to it. I didn't say I didn't say that. One has been crucified for all of our sins. On the other hand, we cannot give in to political correctness. We have to speak the truth. It didn't happen in Jeremiah's day. It's not happening in, in our day. So God goes on to say, verse 6, Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they re- look refuse to know me, declares the Lord. I make a dogmatic statement, but I think it's true. Ignorance of God is always willful ignorance of God. Always willful ignorance of God. I think there's a basis for that. It's a dogmatic statement, but I think it's true. Ignorance of God is always willful. How can it be otherwise? How could it be that a just God would judge someone for not knowing him through no fault of their own? No, he's the God of revelation. But wait, masses of people have not heard the name of Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. But there's another category of God's revelation to humankind. Romans 1 speaks about it as do other passages. It's called general revelation. Why? Because it's available generally. Two sources of general revelation. I've shared this, but it bears repeating. One, creation. You know what David, the psalmist, said one time? He was out there at night watching the sheep. He had nothing to do. He's playing the flute, the harp, whatever he played. He looked up. You know what he said? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? I want to know how you explain the brilliant systematization and design of creation order without making recourse to a designer. Creation, the evidence of a creator design, the evidence of a designer is available generally to all people. Second source of general revelation. That's on the outside. Here's one on the inside. Conscience. Nobody needs a Baptist preacher to tell them when they're doing right or wrong. That's why the thief does not announce his coming in advance. He knows it's wrong, therefore wants to be there when you're absent from the premises generally. Nobody has to preach, thou shalt not steal. Nobody who steals (laughs) publicizes it in advance. Everybody knows. You know what that means? Implanted in each of us is a morality which is evidence of the moral character of the God who made us. So two sources of revelation, conscience on the inside, creation on the outside. What happens when you respond right to those sources of general revelation? 
That's it. Who said that, Billy? Way to go. And Billy, I appreciate the fact that you feel so comfortable. You just scream things out. You don't raise your hand. You don't do anything. Billy, have your way. I feel like I'm just at home with my Jewish relatives. (laughs) Billy is correct. Response to some revelation begets more. So if one responds right to general revelation, God gives special revelation. You know what Romans 1 says? Instead of worshiping and serving and thanking the Creator, they grew foolish in their speculation and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That is willful. Willful. That's a choice. Have you ever heard the story? Someone from a place like Sagemont Church goes on a missions trip to some place. And while there, gets the marvelous opportunity of talking to someone about Jesus. And that person says, ah, that's his name. I remember that very thing happened to Bob Kreitz, who went on a missions trip. I can't remember. It might have been to India or something here. Ah, I've been wondering what his name is. That's a person who's been responding to the evidence of God through creation and conscience. And now God snuck over a guy from League City, Texas, (laughs) to tell him who Jesus was. So the right response to general revelation begets special revelation. Why? Because God wants to be known. He doesn't stay hidden in the shadows. He so much wants to be known. He became flesh, human. He gave us plenty of revelation. So as it was in Israel's day of old, so too today. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. It's always willful. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. For what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? He will purify them through judgment and affliction. Do you notice the last two words of that verse? Yet they're still his people. Wow. My people. Has God forsaken his people, says Paul? May it never be. No. Verse 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit with his mouth. One speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. And now this rhetorical question, which God puts out... Look, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord. On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? What would you say if God put those questions to us today with reference to our nation? How would you answer? If you're honest and spoke the truth, you would say, O thou Righteous judge, we deserve your judgment. You would say, judge us that we might repent and turn to you. And folks, I speak to you as a citizen of this land. I'm not looking for a better deal. I'm not going anywhere. But I have to tell you, I believe judgment is upon us.
And Charlie is right in what he just said. He said, I hope so. And I'll tell you why he's right. It's not to be vicious or punitive. I know that man's heart. Charlie, what's going to bring us to the end of ourself and to, to the beginning of new life in Christ? But an emptying of self we are not volunteering for. No, we are seeking to fill ourselves up with self-promotion and pride and sufficiency. It cannot work. We are just about on the verge of succeeding, of extracting God from the formula of life. And we are failing miserably because of it. This is not due to any particular political party. I think that's a little, that's stopping short. I think it's due to us. Look, God created the world in the power of his word. When he finished, like an artist admiring his work, he took a step back and pronounced these words. He said, it is very good. In Hebrew, tov ma'od. Tov means good. Ma'od means to the max. What I made is not just good. It's intensely, it's strikingly good. Well, folks, we made it bad. We are not good. We entered into a pristine, flawless, sin-free environment. We filled it with sin and corrupted it. We're seeing what life lived independent of God will be like. So he could ask the same question on a nation such as this. Shall I not avenge myself? environmentalists scream about how we are mistreating mother nature perhaps there's a basis to what they're saying but it's a distraction from the truth i think the father is screaming how you have polluted the very good world i made for you to dwell in and it's pollution on the inside of you don't blame it on the atmosphere Look, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Sadly, however, we just read the news of the Gores, uh, the demise of their marriage. Uh, former Vice President Al and wife Tipper Gore, after 40 years, no one should rejoice. No one should have disdain, you know, but for the grace of God. But I just want to make a point. It appears possibly that there has been an affair of an ongoing nature between the vice president and somebody else's wife. Here's my point. Again, not to harden how could he. He is me. I is he. We're all made out of the same cloth, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's not my point in bringing this up. My point is this. This man has been on the forefront of the environmental movement, even to such extent that he was the recipient of the Nobel Prize for it. Can you see how he's allowed himself to be distracted from the real problem? The problem is within him. And instead of acknowledging it, it's so hard to do so and submitting to a savior. It's better to say our number one problem is climate change. No, it isn't. 
Our number one problem is not the melting Arctic polar ice caps. No. Our number one problem is me, you. For the very thing I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that I do. I have a problem. It's sin within me. So environmentalism, not good stewardship of the earth, that's a good thing. But the ism of environmentalism is a religion which has simply said, you're okay, it's what's outside of you that needs a renovation. And we'll even award the person who writes a book about it with a Nobel Prize, you see? Oh, no. The number one problem is alienation from the God who created a very good world in which we have putrefied through our sin to such an extent that God says, and we'll close with this, verse 10, for the mountains I will take up a weeping. Remember now, God is still the one speaking. At the beginning, we saw Jeremiah weeping. And now, can you imagine it? Jeremiah's God is weeping as well. Here is this God whose holiness has been so greatly offended in Jeremiah's day and surely, nonetheless, no less in our day. And he's weeping. Why? He cannot compromise his holiness. Judgment will come. But he's not pleased with it. He doesn't delight in it. He would rather people obey him and have it better in their lives. And so he weeps for the very mountains. Why? Because sin, even the private sin, we think we're entitled to. You know, two consenting adults. I'm not hurting anyone. Yeah, you are. You're hurting the environment. Sin has such a corrupting effect. Even the mountains are affected to such an extent that God weeps. He's saying, I know there's a problem with the environment outside, but it's because it's been infected by your polluted environment on the inside. And God weeps over that and he says I weep for the pastures of the wilderness a dirge because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of the cattle is not heard both the birds of the sky beasts of the field they are gone folks um, the judgment which I think is befalling our nation that is to say all manner of things happening which we cannot fix, even something like an oil spill in the Gulf, as um, immense as it is, it's small when you think of all manner of things. Uh, when you think of the economy and the debt load our nation carries, whoa. When you think of breakdown in uh, our culture with regard to morality, when you think of um, crime of a senseless kind, when you think of um, the flaws of the educational system, not the fault of teachers who try so hard, I didn't say that, when you think of the breakdown of the family, um, when, you, when you think of the uh, legitimization of... Uh, of abortion and things like that, when you think of the rising acceptability of the homosexual lifestyle, um, will not God judge those things? Should he not judge those things? 
isn't it good? In Jeremiah's day, the people were um, judged, many slaughtered, many carried into bondage, and then later, after 70 years of captivity, many returned to rebuild. I think that will happen. There will be a turning to God by some, but first there has to be uh, the emptying of self-confidence. Later in the text, maybe we'll get there next week, God says, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Those are the things we boast in. Wisdom, not godly wisdom, education. We boast in education as if that's the answer to what's going on on the inside. Secondly, we boast in might. So we got power mongers in Washington, D.C. and across the world dividing up things for their own self-aggrandizement. So um, education and then my, and then wealth. An in- interesting distribution of wealth today where some seem not to have enough of it while others have so little of it. Such a disproportionate, uh, displeasing to God, I'm sure, distribution of wealth. Anyway, my point is this. That's what we boast in. But God says, no, if you're going to boast, boast in this, that you know me. See that you know me. That you know me. But how do you get to that point where you give up your hold, my hold on riches and on education and on power and influence? How do I give that up voluntarily? We don't. No one's going to. God renders us so weak that maybe our hold is loosed. We can't even hang on to those things anymore because riches cannot be counted on. The might of the United States is really being challenged on many, many fronts. Education seems not to be the answer to society. I mean, PhDs can commit horrible sin just like anybody can. So, you see, I think God is helping us to see those are not the... You can be anything you want to be. That mantra is sheer and utter untruth. You cannot be anything you want to be. You can't even take the next breath on your own unless God enables it. No, you can't be anything. (laughs) You're weak. You're frail. You're, the Bible says, like a passing vapor. You are sustained by the giver of life, and that's it. So I think what's happening in our nation must happen. We must grieve over it, and yet on the other hand, we must say, yes, God, judge away, judge away, so that some will turn to you. What will others do? Harden. Harden. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. It's a great day to be a Christian because everyone's confidence in the institutions is shaken. And so you could say, is there anything you can count on then you can say, let me introduce you to the one I have found to be my rock. You can count on him. He could be your rock. No one would dare defend the uh, stability of society today. So in the midst of the instability, you could say, but Jesus is the rock. You see? So it's a good day to be alive. Jeremiah's day was a good day. Our day's a good day. Lord Jesus, your sovereignty means so much to us seated on the throne using 
look, if you could use Nebuchadnezzar and the uh, Babylonians to accomplish your purposes, you surely could use all of us today. And even those who who don't know you, that's what your sovereignty means. You've saved us from sin and I think also from hopelessness and despair. You're up to something, Lord Jesus, and boy, is it happening at a rapid clip in our day. Uh, Lord, we pray many in this day would find their way not to religion, not to denominationalism, no, to you in a personal way. May the boast of many be that we know and understand you. So we pray, O God, for a mighty outpouring of your spirit, yes, for judgment and also for redemption. And this we pray in the name of the Redeemer, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well.